Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. It's a Bitcoin Podcast. everybody uh welcome back to the bitcoin podcast uh this is episode 292 <laughs> yes that pause was because i forgot but i got it right um i'm the host that talks first d i am one other host dr Corey petty and today we have a guest host for the round table jt you want to introduce yourself Hey guys, uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, name's John Tompkins. Uh, been in the Slack, I guess, for about two years now, hanging around, popping up here and there. Uh, so happy to hop on the show. For been on once or twice, I think. Yeah. In some of the group shows, but first time solo. So thanks for having me. Yeah. <laughs> tell tell us a little about what, what you do. You you write for a while. I mean, you've you've written for a long time in terms of like um, trying to give out content for kind of recaps of what's going on. What else do you do in terms of your livelihood and uh, interest in the space? Yeah. Uh, been interested in the space for uh, probably about three and a half years now. And then for about a year and a half, I've been working full time on a um, project we're building on Ethereum for risk transfer. So insurance type products, um, but then on the side, uh, so that's kind of my main gig. And then on the side, do try to do some writing, kind of fell off last year, but getting back into it this year, just around DeFi stuff and Bitcoin stuff and things like that. So um, just throw some things out on Medium here and there. And otherwise, try to keep keep my thumb on the space as a, you know, one of the few kind of full-time folks. Um, I'm working more freelance um, on this job. So yeah, I could just spend a lot of time listening to everything and reading everything about it. So trying to kind of distill some things and get, get that out there. Yeah, Can you drop names on your what? startup or is it too early? Oh, uh, oh, like the name of it? No, there's no, there's no real good public information out there available okay. for it yet. Stealth um, mode. Stealth dark mode. I can see. Yeah, kind of. Uh, <laughs> being bad at getting public facing information together mode. We'll, we'll put it that way, but uh, we'll be at East Denver for anyone else listening. That's going to be there. Uh, Atomic is the name of the project. We're not going to have a spot, but I'll be roaming around talking to folks and we'll have stuff up by then. So when is that Denver? during this uh, East Denver? It's, it's a month away. So four weeks from, I guess last week I'll be there just for the weekend. So yeah, the 14th. Yeah. That's too much. Flying out on Valentine's yeah. Day. Yeah. <laughs> 
So I wanted to get JT on the show because Corey and I, um, we started talking about the guests that we have. And then we quickly wanted we we quickly want to talk about like the derivatives markets and why they're important and why they're huge and what do they mean? And then we were like, well, we don't really know shit. So then we were like, <laughs> who, who knows a lot? And I always read your stuff. And I'm one, I'm shocked that you listen to me talk about Street Fighter all the time because the stuff that you write is like, yeah, this guy knows his shit. So I pinged you and you want to get on the show. And I think uh, one of the interviews around Bitwise and they're about asset management. But we just wanted to kind of discuss derivatives and why it's kind of important that right now there's two derivatives markets based on just Bitcoin. And well, I'm sure there's a lot of shit going on with DeFi, but DeFi is like this big mystery box. I don't really want to open. I'm kind why of not? scared to. It just it's it's, it's not just that, scary. It's not that crazy. It's scary looking. It's like friendly box. It's a friendly box. I don't know, man. It's like uh, so is a jack in the box, and you see how babies react. It's to traditional things. finance decentralized. That's why do you think they call it decentralized finance? I mean, yeah, I get the words, but I just don't. Uh, so then, I guess what that means is I don't understand traditional finance as well as <laughs> I think I do. So, um, so there's the CME futures and then backed futures, and their volume is growing really fast. And like, so I'm thinking like what, and then now last week or two weeks ago, options trading went live, uh, backed is doing, or sorry, CME is doing options trading now. And so what does a robust derivatives market do for the underlying asset? I don't know. Let's just talk about this shit. Sure. Uh, I can give you, I can do a quick kind of rundown, uh, I guess, whoa what it matters for in response to crypto or at least kind of how things have popped up uh, a little, I'll just throw a little asterisk out there. Um, I'm not a, I was never a trader or anything like that. Um, I spent 11 years um, working on an asset management platform on the software side, doing, you know, customization and deployment for hedge funds. So a lot of that involved trying to display their, alternative assets and derivatives in ways that kind of made sense. So talk through it a lot, but I'm by no means uh, someone who's been, you know, deep in the weeds on that stuff. But in general, uh, derivatives, the in initial intention when derivatives were first kind of created and allowed uh, in markets was for um, hedging price risk, basically allowing you to kind of pass that price risk off to someone else. So the you know original examples like farmers trying to basically just you know sell their wheat or whatever they're growing out in the future so they're selling futures saying i'll give you 100 bales of wheat um at 100 dollars per bale you know six months out from now so that's technically a derivative of the underlying asset which is the wheat so there's futures markets for you know basically any asset um you know commodity that's out there um that's a very robust market um then there's you know sprung up more uh more you know more exotic derivatives um options are probably the next most common and then where that kind of fits in any market is there's either you're using it to hedge a position or you know transfer you know a, a risk so a lot of times you're going to be looking at taking a position in some underlying asset but you may want to protect yourself against certain risks inherent in that uh, asset. So one thing is, you know, you might not think of is, let's say you have a whole bunch of Apple stock, 
but you know that Apple has some correlation to uh, the Chinese yuan, uh, and you don't want to carry that risk of how that affects Apple's business. So you might take some short position in that. That's technically a hedge, um, and that's you know you purchase some derivative to take that short um, to hedge that risk out. Um, so you can use derivatives all day for that, um, and but then the flip side is you can use them to speculate on op, uh, on uh, positions as well on for how you know underlying assets may perform, and then you can kind of structure them together to create um, assets and create leverage. So if you find a way to kind of have a risk-free way to earn a very small percentage of money, you can uh, a, a small percentage return. You can use derivatives to basically leverage up because usually you only have to put up a small amount of assets to get exposure to a large amount of the underlying asset. Um, and depending on the underlying asset and the market and the derivative, there may or may not be rules or restrictions for how much the issuers of these assets, which are you know, investment banks, um, how much they can actually issue. So for much of the market, they can issue many, many times more uh, synthetic exposure to an underlying asset than there actually exists in the underlying assets. That's why you see like derivatives markets can dwarf um, traditional markets. Um, the assumption being that they're, they can be hedged, um, that they kind of net each other out, and then the net net of all these derivatives may not be that much more than the underlying assets. Um, but the complexity of these instruments and how they fit together and people's fundamental lack of understanding of how they fit together um, parlayed with the fact that if financial institutions that issue them go under, they'll get bailed out by the government. There's really no disincentive to not just issue as much as possible and go super long mm -hmm. leverage. Um, so that's kind of how they work in the traditional uh, sense. Um, in the crypto sense, you know, it was actually right around the top when the first Bitcoin futures were um, introduced, which was the first kind of ability to take a short position on Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. um, and kind of unsurprisingly, I guess, that correlated with a drop in the price of Bitcoin, not necessarily because you could short it, um, but because you could short it, but also it was, you didn't actually have to settle with Bitcoin. You could cash settle it, which basically just meant you had to put up dollars. You could take a short position in Bitcoin and then that had an end date on it. And at the end of that time frame, it just settled and whoever won based on the price movement got that cash. No Bitcoin actually had to get moved in the process. Mm. Um, the excitement around BACT is it's the first um, cash settled Bitcoin um, futures market uh, uh, cash settled futures Bitcoin physically settled, settled sorry physically settled uh, Bitcoin futures market so yeah it's Bitcoin settled which means that every mm -hmm. settlement of these futures contracts real Bitcoin has to get moved so hopefully it creates a more robust and true and um, you know representative market where you know, if people want to express themselves by taking these positions, real Bitcoin's getting moved. And um, when that happens, and it's not just some betting thing and people are incentivized to just run the price down. Yeah, I always um, felt like things like GBTC, um, although like I feel, I feel if you bought GBTC, they had to go and buy Bitcoin. And so basically what they were doing was assuming the, I guess, custodial risk of holding it and yep. then... Uh, but and but with with back, what's the difference? Like it's 
it's it's like okay with with GBGC, it's people making bets on a company purchasing Bitcoin, kind mm, of so based on movement of what the price of Bitcoin is. With backed, it seems as though they're that they're they're less removed from the actual price of Bitcoin. Yeah. So with it's just different in that GBDC is basically a, a go between where you can go and mint basically GBDC if you meet certain criteria, like you have to be a credit investor and I don't know, probably a few other things. And you can go there and I think give them cash or Bitcoin um, and mint the GBTC, uh, which I think it's like, what, 10 to 1 or 100 to 1? I, I, I forget. It's 10 to 1. 10 to 1? Yeah. Um, so you get those uh, and they hold the GBTC in the background. So, you know, it's technically a derivative. Yeah, it's technically a derivative, but it's not leveraged. Um, so that is basically just providing access. They, yeah. they hold it in the background and then it creates this new, they issue this asset that can be traded on exchanges. And because they've, agreed to certain regulations and audits and yada 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 then you know they're allowed to issue this asset that can trade on exchanges um the futures is a bit different where yeah that's all custodied you can go there and and this is where like the actual settlement of it is stuff i'm not like as super uh familiar with but i would consider gptc closer to like you know if you're talking about bitwise they have like a an index yeah right so they talk about that index yeah so they hold a a basket of assets and then they issue basically by market cap it's 101 by the way sorry okay yeah 101 yeah so gptc is kind of the same but it just holds bitcoin Bitcoin. okay so it's basically an index that people could buy uh that is only bitcoin as opposed to the top 10 yeah, and there's rules, there's little di- kind of different rules around it for how it's a trust is how GBTC is structured. So there's some differences in that. Yeah. And um, so like there is a lockup period between before you can actually uh, cash the GBTC back in for Bitcoin. So there's actually like a, a carry trade you can do um, based on that premium because there's a premium, there's a premium for it being locked up where mm-hmm. something that's issued more like an index, it's you can never really, you can't really go and trade that back in and say, hey, give me the underlying. It's like they might have a stock of the underlying and then issue a whole bunch of these and then they can trade on the free market. Um, but it's not like, it's, it's just a kind of a slightly different structure, but very similar in that you kind of, you have to be 100% backed yeah. um, with the asset. With the, you know, I have to look into the backed futures for B, not B-A-C-K-E-D-B-A-K-K-T. <laughs> Futures. <laughs> so they're physically settled for how you can get uh, yeah. leverage with those. They might, I think what it is, is, yeah, sorry, I think this is how it's structured. You can still go to them and put up 10% of the size of the trade that you want. You can say, I want to trade $100,000 worth of Bitcoin. I want to take a long position on on these futures. And you can give them, I don't know what the, the deposit is, but you give them 10, 20, whatever thousand dollars um and they hold that as that position and then uh, there can be margin calls as it moves against you um or if it goes your way and it settles and it goes up to one hundred twenty thousand dollars, you they basically you can choose to settle the cash or you can probably choose to settle uh physically and get the bitcoin but you probably have to provide the net value in dollars to them so there's still a way for you to leverage up and taking that position 
Um, but in the end, there is actually Bitcoin getting moved where before it was all just paper. Yeah. You know, it's just like structured betting products. I actually um, I had a client this past year who uses a futures market. He's in oil. He's in the oil business. Yeah. And he uses the futures market. And that was the first time I had no idea what it was for. I just knew what it did. But I, I'd never seen someone actually apply it to their business. And it was really funny because, he, you know, you buy the oil at a low price. And then by the time you need the oil to service to your customers, you settle it at that low price in the future. But your customers have to pay the higher price because that's now the price of oil. Mm. Right. And so that's how his, his business was, was working. And he was like, yeah, I got to maximize my margin in there because you know blah 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 but i saw someone actually use a futures market and i was like okay that's why we have physically backed futures markets because had he done that and it wasn't physically backed then all he gets is a pile of cash and then he's got to go buy his oil at the new high prices so i was like oh okay that's how you actually use a futures market that makes a lot of sense yeah it's all about quantifying the various risks in a position in a position can be like, I have a business and I have certain risks and you might want to hedge them out and there can be financial products to do that. Um, but there's, you know, a million different ways you can look at different assets and say, these might have interest rate risk, or these might have foreign currency risk, or these might just have underlying price risk. Um, you know, that you're worried about, you know, you can take a long position, you know, hedging and derivatives are as easy as just taking a short position because with that you're having to borrow some asset to then sell it and then hope to buy back in the future and usually with that you only have to put up a portion of the asset that you're that you're borrowing um mm -hmm. and then basically if things move against you you get liquidated you know mm -hmm. um so a lot of that um can be good uh for your business but then you know you can also get, it was also can be used as a way to get super high leverage um, yeah, as a fund. So I guess to tie it back to why some of this stuff is important is because a lot of hedge funds and other institutions won't, either they're not allowed to, or they just won't invest in asset classes where these options for uh, taking a, putting a hedge on a position mm -hmm. don't exist. They're just like, okay, well, we, we just won't trade it. That's what I think is the most important thing about these these uh, these products like getting more popular volume wise is that now all of a sudden you can get exposure from there's no telling like there's, you know, private equity out there that that spends billions of dollars on stuff like this and looking for opportunities for low risk, high gain. And mm -hmm. there's businesses that have marketable securities accounts that will look for low risk, high gain opportunities. So when you see a product like CME futures growing and then backed growing and now they're having options. And then, you know, there's at least four other people right now trying to throw their hat in the ring. All of a sudden you start seeing enormous value, enormous volume. And um, I think that's the most exciting thing. And that's why when people are laughing at Bitcoin, I'm like, what are you laughing at? Bitcoin is like winning the game. Like there's nothing to laugh at here. Yeah. <laughs> so um, it's, it's uh it's it's fun. I like I like seeing all this this news. It sucks that it's like kind of antithetical to like this whole space and how it started with like regulations and blah 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 blah. Depends blah. On what your end, your end goal is. Um, you know, if the end goal is to get the number up as quickly as possible, and you want the you know input of the financial institutions, like yeah, this stuff needs to needs to exist. Um, you know, that's why I find the stuff happening in the DeFi space very interesting is because they're trying to, there are a lot of different projects 
projects that are building the same things, but in a decentralized manner, because um, I was actually working in New York and um, on site at hedge funds, deploying software and helping them kind of manage their, you know, they, we had like a position management tool and a trade management tool that they would use. So I was like on the trading desk and I was there during 2008, 2009, when things started going crazy. Um, and you started to realize like how, you know, no one knew what was happening under the hood. You know, they might have an idea of, you know, their position and how they think they're hedged. But then they you also need to worry about who actually issued those positions, the investment banks. And they need to manage, be managing their risk. They're going leveraged as well because they think that they're hedging these risks against one thing or the other. But they were not. Um, you know, if you think about if you watch the big short when uh, Christian Bale's going around and talking to all the different investment banks, he's specifically structuring a derivative product to short certain um kind of chunks of mortgages that he determined. So like, that's how these, a lot of these things work. You go there, you talk to someone like, this is kind of the financial product I want. I want, I want a hundred million dollars in exposure. They look at it and say, okay, well, let me evaluate the risk here. Uh, how does that net up against the rest of our book? Okay, sure. Like that's really only $10 million exposure in our opinion, but you know, they don't, they don't know. <laughs> no one really no. knows. And you know, the, the, op being caught off guard that these things were more highly correlated than they thought when everything started to go to shit, you know, it's kind of, kind of ridiculous. People just have a bad ability to kind of, um, assume so much that things weren't built on a house of cards. They were, I have a question about kind of, um, how this works inside of the cryptocurrency market. Cause for the longest mm -hmm. time, D has been proselytizing, um, watching GBTC as a price indicator for Bitcoin's movement. Um, and for the longest time, that may have been um, a reasonable thing because that was the only place institutional investors were happy putting their money. Um, and so you saw a, what a good portion of people were thinking, the people who thought most about money, or at least had the most experience thinking about money, based on that one index. Um, but we're starting to see a lot more products come into space. And so that one indicator may not be as good anymore uh are there any thoughts on that like do you think the growth of products for traditional institutional investors being exposed to bitcoin in a myriad of ways helps with helps us with price discovery muddies the water or or gives people more this these aren't necessarily mutual exclusive gives people more tools to manipulate the market in some way yeah, I'd say probably all of the above. Shit. <laughs> uh, to be honest, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, if my stance is always like, well, if I'm asking that question, I know the people that actually do this stuff for a job are going to be asking that that same question. Like, can I use this to get an edge? I mean, it should, the if products are actually issued and regulated and issuing these types of things where people can buy them is where I agree that regulation makes a lot of sense because regulation usually means uh, auditing and um, just inform providing information. So you have to say exactly how something works and you have to provide audits that, you know, you have the assets that are backing it and that you're up holding up your end of the deal. Um, so as long as those are the types of assets that are being issued, it's great for price discovery. You give people more ways to hedge themselves to, you know, once you get options out there, um, it's very interesting. You can kind of see how, you know, I've, you know, I think it's LedgerX, um, they're 
CEO when she was there, I think recently left, she would tweet mm-hmm. out like, oh, okay, June post having $50,000 uh, Bitcoin options are now trading at this price, meaning that the traders of these options give it a you know 10% chance of being at that price. You, know, you can kind of derive some of these statements about what the market's kind of saying. Um, and it's not necessarily, those things aren't particularly useful if you're just saying, looking at one data point, but comparing one to the other at different points in time can yield some interesting things. You're like, oh, well, you know, and this thinks that it'll be the higher probability of it being at 50% in June than 50% in December. Well, like, why would it affect 50,000 in June versus 50,000 in December? Like, say that's, you look, could look at that and be like, well, that's weird that it would think you'd have a higher probability of being higher before, you know, at an earlier, a shorter time frame versus a longer time frame. Like, I don't mm-hmm. know, just, just as an example of something you could look at and glean and say, well, that's interesting. And maybe that's something that you can look to take advantage of. Um, and it gives you more options for how to take advantage of things, um, you know, possible discrepancies. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I just posted in the Slack today or yesterday a screenshot of, you know, Tether being, you know, half a billion Tether getting printed and how that Tether printing has kind of been it and Bitcoin kind of move. Sometimes one moves and catches up to the other or the other one moves first and the other one catches up to it. So it's like mm-hmm. if one jumps, you can kind of expect the other one to kind of follow and the Tether jumped a whole bunch. So it's like, oh, does that mean we're going to keep going up? Um, and that's probably similar to this. And then that was the way that a lot of foreign institutional money would come into the space was through Tether and Bitfinex. Um, and GBTC might have some similar uh, method to that. Although GBTC, well, yeah, so institutions have to provide the GBTC for then all the plebs to go out and buy in their 401ks. Um, you know, they're not actually getting it and holding it. But they might mm. see, they might perceive it as something that might be catching on and that there might be more demand for it. So let's go mint, mint some more. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I th- it, it should lead to better price discovery. The history of markets have shown that it leads to better price discovery if they are, if they are good structured um, products. And that's why I like about a lot of the stuff being built in DeFi is if it's around um, transparency of how a product is structured and if it's around transparency of reserves, if it's everything's open source code and the assets are stored on a public blockchain, then, you know, you can audit do it. that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can see where the money it can, goes. It can be a real time audit. Um, so yeah, I mean, after the crisis, a big thing, you know, it was actually great for the company I was working at because people didn't have compliance platforms. People weren't doing risk man like proper risk management. Um, it was just everyone was five or ten x levered all these all these hedge funds, and then they made all this money, and then they all just blew up. And then coming out of that, there were more reporting requirements, and the Dodd Frank rules came out, which basically required them to like quarterly, depending on the size of your fund, quarterly or biannually report on like your exposures to different sectors. And it was basically that all trying to go to the SEC so they could get a better overall look at like the state of the industry to be like, where is the exposure? You know, or is all the exposure to US financials and like that, if that crashes, then everything's going to go to go to hell. Um, but it's very hard for there to be a standard kind of reporting threshold. And yeah. I think even that got, might get, have already gotten dropped or be getting dropped, um, which I don't know. I don't know if the SEC could even do that and put together a reasonable, useful overall look at the landscape and say, okay, is the market at a point now where it's 
a systemic threat to the country, <laughs> the economy as a whole. Mm. It's uh, some reporting that thing is funny because it's just I'm I've learned I'm I'm wise enough to know now that uh, reporting is a you can only take it for what was reported. Sometimes some shady shit goes down. <laughs> like what? Say something. <laughs> like right. Uh, well, we we did have clients every now and then asked to like delete a couple trades or something like that. We weren't hey, the book of records. We weren't the book of records, so we were okay. We we wiped and reloaded positions each day, so we weren't on the hook for that stuff. I know this for a fact is that there's not a business in the world that's doing successful that there's they have a meeting once a year where they meet with their accountant and maybe there's some lawyers involved and they say, okay, so how'd the year go? And then everybody looks at each other and they're like, it went well, but how well? And the numbers start moving and conversations start having and they're like, so this is what this is how the year went. Yes, that's how the year went. And they all give each other a thumbs up and then they continue on going. And then that doesn't officially get reported until like six months later. And so it's like, mm-hmm. okay, that's what was reported. So, um, but then there's, when you get in trouble, you get audited and you're fucked. So I just know that's how people are doing things. <laughs> well, so. tax and other things are, yeah, a lot of stuff is if you ask someone like, what was your, you know, what are your profits last year? I mean, there's mm-hmm. you know, a thousand different ways to slice it though. Like to oh, honestly yeah. slice it. So <laughs> what I reported, like, what I got, uh, yeah. <laughs> what I took home. Yeah. Yeah. And then the, right. you're like, I don't really know what my profits were. And then the next day you show up, you're like, where'd those 15 trucks come from? They're like, Oh, that's my profits. Yeah. Like, well, <laughs> and not even being sketchy about it. What like profits mean for taxes is like, what is the minimum amount you can like truthfully report that meets these criteria? Because the criteria aren't black or white. You mm. get it's, it's wiggle room uh, that you get to kind of interpret it for your own business. And that's kind of how it works. But yeah, yeah anyways, Crypto I mean, it makes it so much harder too. Cause there's the, like there's wiggle room around how you report crypto and where it goes and how you hold it and when you bought it when you sold it and where it went all that nonsense and then you tie that into like the subtleties of running a business and what profits are and when they're used and how they're allocated i mean is this like i feel like for an incredibly smart person this is this is wonderful because you could put money exactly how you want to put it or you have more options or knobs to like use money interestingly to maximize it's usefulness. On the other hand, it's a fucking nightmare in terms of trying to figure out what the best way to do that is. Yeah, the the, mm. the taxes on the stuff. So the the guys, the people out there now that know how to code and also understand like arbitrage and things like that are killing it in like the Ethereum space right now. When they're finding arbitrage opportunities, you can just instantly move money back and forth. Uh, there was a product launched by Ave Lending, A-A-V-A-E, um, where you can actually, they will give you a, an un, uncollateralized loan uh, from their platform as long as you Seriously? pay it back. So you can take out the loan, but you have to pay it back in the same block. So you can get the loan, execute a bunch of transactions, and then return the money plus interest all in one block. Oh my God! And, That's and 15, 14, 13 seconds. 
Well, you can fit a lot. You can fit a lot of internal transa- uh, transactions in one block. Oh, yeah, yeah, man. If you know what you're doing. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. That's, that's what you're saying. That's what you're saying. It's a lot of time. Yeah. So I posted today. The, it was literally just released. I think last week and today they said someone tracked down. Someone, I guess, just was watching the use of the protocol, and someone's out there just finding sigh and die and just arbitraging the hell out of it just taking out loans they don't even have to you don't even have to put up upfront capital you just have to get the die get you know i think they're borrowing die trading it for side trading it back to die and then giving it back to the to the protocol um and then just taking a couple bucks or whatever here or there moving a couple grand um which is nuts yeah, that's that's slick though. It's actually kind of cool, quite honestly. Yeah. Here's the thing though, like this is this is what gets me about all of this stuff that we've been talking about so far. Is like, how much of your day can you sit and try and figure this out and optimize and 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 program and think about and 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 execute when at the end of the day, the, the most you can do is make money, right? Yeah. Right. There's, there is no good in any of this outside of, like, there's nothing created. There's nothing, I mean, some may argue, and I bet they would, that like you're, you're kind of creating the equilibrium for the market. You're setting, mm-hmm. you're setting price discovery. You're making sure like things equal out so that there's not one thing going out of hand while the other one's really cheap, so on and so forth. By, by, by making all of these trades, you're, bring all the stuff together and find an equilibrium, fuck all that. You're not doing anything really. You're not creating anything. And there's this tremendous amount of talent, experience, wisdom, exp- expertise going into this. And like, mm-hmm. and the underlying protocols don't even fucking work well. Like, like, why can't we have these people working on making the tech better as opposed to twisting all the knobs, if you will. Maybe, maybe they just want to sit in their basement, you know? <laughs> Get a little cash. It's not even a little extra cash. It's potentially a lot of extra cash. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and to be honest, I mean, they are actually a pivotal uh, piece of the whole DeFi ecosystem. I mean, Mm -hmm. Maker wouldn't operate if there weren't, uh, if there wasn't a sophisticated set of liquidators um, that are ready and willing to liquidate um, vaults at a moment's notice and uh, you know right now I think it's moved to it's uh, an auction system so they'll auction off the the collateral and the system is it's healthiest when it sells as close to the spot price as possible so you, you don't if there's only two people or whatever that cared um, it would be you know very capital inefficient there'd be so much lost every time yeah. I, you're well, right it is I efficient mean, it is useful I just never want to spend my life doing it yeah yeah, well, I think, Corey, maybe you're not expanding on, like, take it one step further. Like, they don't just want money. Nobody, I mean, nobody's Duck McScrooge. They have uh, the money for something. Uh, I mean, yeah, there's plenty of Duck McScrooges <laughs> out there, but, like. So if I, I don't know if you forgot the part where I told you I worked with the hedge funds for 11 years. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, like, they want that money for something, like. They have, well, maybe they yachts. fucking don't. Maybe they yachts. don't. Yachts, yeah, yachts, but, like, yachts, yachts. Yeah, yeah. how big? Yeah. How big of a yacht do we want? Like, you know, but, a lot of manage money for other institutions that are doing other things, but yeah, like you know, some of those hedge funds are just a line on somebody's balance sheet. So, um, yeah, you know what blew my mind, Corey? Because you know I'm gloriously ignorant. So, and I really like that phrase. I think I'm gonna own it. 
But I was like, hmm, in math, you can take a derivative of a derivative. Can you take a derivative of a money derivative? And the answer is yes. You can do so like Dude, GBC- have you seen? Have you seen that? That, that This is the, the, I'd say, for plebes like me who don't understand financial markets and all the, all the tools and things you can do, like the products associated with traditional finance, the the part of the big short where they do they have that the betting scene they're on i think they're on like a blackjack table and they explain what options are and they go more and more and more and more and more each time they go back it's 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 betting on the previous derivative so you can have multiple layers of the derivatives and each time you get more and more exposed in terms of leverage right and so like one dollar turns into like a million dollars really quickly because it it compounds itself as you go each level down yeah, a bunch of clients would trade swaptions. It was like swaps on options. <laughs> fucking names. Come up with stupid ass names for these things. Yeah, Ooh. yeah, and it, and the more you go, the less people understand it. Um, yeah, because like there's like if you think about say you're say you're four layers deep, right? On some actual physical asset being moved. Uh, like in order to explain what that is, you need to explain those every single four layers before you people who are like okay i get the risk here and that's a lot of potentially a lot of risk depending on how complex each layer is mm-hmm. yeah mm. yeah it's stuff that you don't even you know the way that we're explaining very vanilla things and the stakes that i think most people that are not deep in the space or deep in investing kind of think about is like Oh, I, I want to take a bet on Bitcoin. I would prefer to take a leverage bet on Bitcoin, so I'm just going to buy a call option. So very easy to understand. You're going to say, okay, well, if Bitcoin's above ten thousand dollars in June, then you know I'm going to pay a little bit up front now, and then if it's above ten thousand dollars, I can you know settle this for one for one Bitcoin. And then basically, if Bitcoin's above ten thousand dollars, if it's at twelve, then great, you get you paid a little bit, and now you have you know one Bitcoin. Awesome. That, that worked out well for you when you're trying to use that as a hedge against something else happening in the market. And then you're assuming that, you know, the price risk is the only thing that you're taking on. That's when things get hairy. So if anyone out there wants to Google like uh, long-term capital management, this is one of the bigger, there's a whole bunch of PhDs and smart people that uh, some hedge fund guys went out and said, hey, let's set a, start a fund with all these you know, PhDs from MIT and things like that. So they got all these guys, everyone, everyone's smart, raised billions and billions of dollars. And then they just took huge leverage positions. I think it was on like, um, like Russian bonds or something like that. And based on their calculations, they were perfectly hedged and, you know, they would get 1% return on the standard, you know, on the, uh, you know, on their position, but then they just were super leveraged to try to get a better return. And they ended up kicking off like a financial crisis once they all, everything <laughs> fell apart. They weren't evaluating for some other risk in their, in their um, model. So you can't, you can't take it all 100. You can't go out and say you're a hundred percent leverage. And if you blow yourself up, great, like fine. But if you are a you got to then look to what relies on them. So who had their money in long-term capital management and who had their money in those people and what were those people funding? Um, what are those institutions funding? Governments were probably, you know, invested and that has long ranging effects. So it's when it gets, it's when it gets to institutional and when it gets mm. to these people can't understand what's, what's going to happen, um, which I mean, no one 
does. Um, that's when bad. Yeah. So I, I, I usually you think about this analogy, especially right now, because I'm about to go watch a bunch of UFC fights. Um, like a simple uh, financial product is betting on the outcome of a single fight or even a single round for that matter. Uh, and I feel like traditional like institutional investors live and die only in the idea of betting on the entire card. Not only like the entire card of a fight, like every single outcome of every fight, but maybe even like every single outcome of every round of every fight. And 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 that's where they're putting all their money. And they're so heavily leveraged in these really, really complex games that they have models and so on and so forth to bet on. Granted, it's not as volatile. Maybe it is as a as a fight, but uh it's it's the same idea, right? Where like I can say, oh I bet even any, any sports betting, this team's going to win. Or I bet this team's going to win by this much by, you know, and, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the score is going to be this to this. Or I bet this team's going to go this way across the entire uh, season, each game having some type of spread that's this. And, and they make these more and more and more complex bets based on a bunch of different events needing to align together to actually win. And the more complex it becomes, the more quote-unquote leveraged you are so like if you win you're like i put one dollar down and i'm a billionaire versus like i won and i got and i don't double my money so i guess to extend the the analogy i think like the way you could think about it is let's say you wanted to bet a thousand dollars on uh mcgregor winning the fight he's it's what he's fighting the cowboy guy or yeah cerrone right? mcgregor yeah. mcgregor versus cowboy. cerrone so cerrone cerrone is his name he, they go, he goes by cowboy Okay, uh, so you're going to put, you have $1,000, you want to bet on that. So you're going to put $1,000 on McGregor. But then to hedge that, you're going to also bet, a, maybe the odds on that are, you know, uh, two to one. And then the odds for a Cerrone knockout are, uh, you know, like 1.5 to one or something like that. Uh, so you also then go put, uh, thousand dollars worth on Cerrone and you can say look hedge max, maximum doubt downside is a half so I'm gonna put this on McGregor and then I'm gonna put this on a Cerrone knockout but then you're operating under the assumption that um, the only way uh, Cerrone wins is by knockout so then you can go and sell that to institutions and say look at my position Cerrone only ever wins by knockouts so because of that my exposure to this position is only uh, you know like a quarter of it or whatever so you're, it's only 500 bucks so this other 1500 dollars that i have i'd like to open up another position with it and you go bet on some more fights <laughs> so that's how the leverage happens because you can go yeah. and you say look i'm hedge i'm a hedge fund I, that's what i do professionally here's the product that i structured is hedged for these reasons and then you're able to take that capital because you say here's my gross exposure but my net exposure is only the smaller amount um so you should let me then go take these assets um and issue me more products uh you know it's really the institutions issuing the products for these these more exotic ones to you they're evaluating you and your ability to stay solvent um so you know, as long as they look at it and think you can convince them it's legit, then they're fine. Um, and they can issue more bets on more fights, but then Cerrone wins by decision and your whole thing falls apart. I feel like it's all just so 
wrought with the possibility of corruption. And I guess that's true because there's been so much corruption in it, right? Because like when you have that much money leveraged over so many different things that you need to play place, like you're you're much more incentivized to like start paying someone to make sure that shit happens. Yeah, exactly. That's why boxing lost its glory. That's why it's just because it's really too easy to manipulate. You go to a boxer and you say, hey, man, I'll give you $5,000 if you go down in the third round. And he's like, $5,000? That's exactly what I need for whatever the shit. And little yeah. does he know you're going to make two hundred grand. Well, isn't that the whole the like, beauty or like idea of, of DeFi is that you're taking away a lot of the things, like a lot of the knobs and tools people have to manipulate. Like you're, re- you're reducing the space available to manipulate. And so you have a lot more, I guess, trust or ability to assess risk on like the foundations of how these products are being built. As opposed to say, I hope the people who do them are trustworthy or like they have a, they have a long time kind of track record of being successful. I guess they're going to keep doing that. I don't know how they're doing it. That's because it's quite opaque, but they seem to be doing it. Yeah, and the bringing it back to DeFi, it's great. That's why the Oracle issue is such a big issue yeah. because if you get a robust derivatives market, and then so in the real world, like oh, well, the underlying asset, like most of them trade on markets that close, so they close every day, and then each market has a close price, and then there's super robust markets all over the world where crypto never closes. So if you're going to say, um, you know, we're going to have these. ETH options or, you know, some other ERC-20 options or Bitcoin options, like when do you mark the price and where are you getting that price from? Because even being off by a penny's value of it, then it can really have a large cascading effect. Mm -hmm. Well, let's try and spin that cascading effect into an interview. Um, We did did quite the roundtable. We hope that we got you guys' Bits Ghibli about derivatives market. Bits Ghibli. That's yeah, a new one. I've never heard Sometimes that one from you. Gotta get the, you got to get the Bits Ghibli. I don't even know what it means, but it flowed. <laughs> it's the name of this uh, episode. Got it. <laughs> so today's interview was with a gentleman by the name of Hong Kim. Um, and you guys talked about ETFs and the possibility of an ETF, which is a whole nother kid and caboodle, but which is also a derivative. Talked about OTC, uh, talked about wash trading, talked about the index, yeah. talked about manipulations of the index, talked about uh, all kinds of stuff. It's really good interview. Yeah, so this has been a juicy episode, uh, but this guy, so Bitwise is an asset management uh, pioneer, the first cryptocurrency index fund, uh, leading provider of rules-based exposure to the crypto asset space. Um, this is the stuff that comes from their website, but I'm just going to let you listen to Hong Kim. <laughs> Talk about it. Here it is. And hey, welcome back for another interview of the Bitcoin Podcast. I'm your host today, Corey Petty. And today we have Hong Kim, CTO and co-founder of Bitwise. Um, wanted to get into some kind of specifics Hello? about uh, exchanges and so on and so forth. But first, we could do the, the normal thing and have you introduce yourself and what Bitwise does. Hello, happy to be here. Uh, my name is Hong Kim. I'm the CTO and co-founder at Bitwise Asset Management. Uh, our firm is a leading index uh, fund manager in this space. So we launched the first uh, top 10 cryptocurrency index uh, back in late 2017 uh, and uh, have been operating that and managing that fund and also distributing that to 
uh, high net worth individuals and primarily uh, advisors, uh, financial advisors in the U.S. So uh, that's a little bit of what it was. Uh, yeah. What did you do before that? How did you get into the space? Oh, so uh, my background is in generally software uh, and uh, software security. So I was in uh, the Korean military for about two years uh, doing software security research. Uh, and then I started the company with uh, uh, I now co-founder Hunter Horsley, who was a product manager at Facebook. And I am to start OS. How we got into crypto? That's a good question. So we were generally uh, very curious uh, about all the things that were happening in the Valley um, in late 2016 and early 2017. Uh, and we uh, caught the crypto bug in general. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of people around us were uh, talking up, uh, about a lot of the issues um, uh, in, in sort of the blockchain space in general, but also crypto assets like Bitcoin, Ethereum, et cetera. Uh, and we started reading a lot of the uh, technical material and, and we're getting involved in the community. Uh, and at what point uh, we became bullish ourselves and we wanted to contribute to this space. So uh, that led to a sort of a time period in which we did a fair amount of idea exploration and landed on um, the index fund idea and also to sort of build a asset manager uh, in this space. Can you talk a little, about, little bit about that index and like what it is, how it works and, and how it fits into the ecosystem as a whole? Yeah, sure. That, that's a great question. So generally in 2017, uh, in late 2016, if you can remember that sort of crazy time period, oh, yeah. um, there were a lot of ICOs happening, a lot of trading desks popping up, um, and a, also a lot of hedge funds starting. Um, and the hedge funds generally in traditional asset classes represent funds that are trying to beat the market. So trying to pr- provide alpha on top of whatever the market beta is returning. So if the S&P 500, the equities, uh, is returning 10%, and the hedge fund is trying to return 15%, 20%, and then take a performance fee on the additional performance they provide. So usually take a management fee of, let's say, 2%, uh, and a performance fee of, let's say, 20% of the outperformance that they do. So the additional 10% they deliver, they would take uh, 2% of that as their performance fee, et cetera. Um, but the crypto hedge funds that were popping up at the time in, in early 2017 weren't really doing uh, much uh, of the alpha generation, or, or there was no reason to believe that, that uh, uh, such was the case because nobody had any track record. They were just starting off, and all, a lot of the times the managers were new to uh, the space and also at times being a hedge fund manager themselves, uh, period. Uh, so a lot of the money flowing in to those funds uh, and a lot of the interest around them uh, from our conversations we found were simply because people really did not have a good way to build a diversified portfolio. They were hearing about all these coins that were popping up, uh, did not have the time in, or expertise in general to research any of them. Uh, you also don't know what the weight should be. Should I have 80% Bitcoin, 50% Bitcoin? Uh, and... So all those questions uh, can be generally systemized and become a transparent sort of rule set that can be programmatically applied. Uh, and that is the case in a lot of other asset classes. So you don't really think about whether you should overweight or underweight Walmart in your equities portfolio. You just buy the S&P 500 index fund, and that takes care of 
giving you exposure to the entire U.S. equities uh, asset class. So if the U.S. market as a whole does well, then you would be up the same amount and vice versa. So we want to pro- wanted to provide something very similar for the cryptocurrency space to, to simplify the investing experience so that people did not have to uh, choose and figure out how to trade and custody and pay taxes and all these things for individual coins and rather can just make a bet on the high-level thesis that they have, which is something great can happen in crypto uh, and uh, I want this amount of my money to be invested in this asset class. So we saw the need for that from all the hedge funds that were popping up and the conversations that we are having uh, and we created uh, the product. So the product just has a, a, a management fee without a performance fee because it's not trying to be a hedge fund or trying to beat the market uh, and uh, give sort of straightforward exposure to a lot of um, investors. Yeah, the, the obvious question there for me, at least, um, kind of as a data scientist, is in order to build an index, you need to have some type of metric to evaluate all of these things, Whether and, and you need to pick from the basket that was the ridiculous amount of things that happened in early 2017 to late 2017, and choose winners based on you know a variety of metrics if you will depending on what kind of um space you're trying to innovate in and then on top of that weight them how do you do that or like what was what, what was the maybe the, the the go-to strategy for bitwise because you can do it in a, in a myriad of ways that's a great question uh and again the key here is actually that we aren't trying to beat the market in the sense that we're trying to choose winners but rather give you an accurate representation of what the market is in totality. So the S&P 500 uh, is not an index where the S&P, the company, chose the 500 favorite companies that they see in the market of, let's say, 4,000 listed stocks in the U.S., but rather is simply the 500 largest that meet certain eligibility criteria. So so they they exclude certain stocks that don't, don't trade much, uh, they exclude stocks that have some other uh, issues, but generally it is a market cap weighted index. So the larger uh, the stock, then it would have a higher weighting. And it also the, the cutoff is by simply ranking the market caps. And that rule is applied similarly to the Bitwise 10 index as well. It is a market cap weighted index. It is ranked by market cap as well. So Bitcoin is... Uh, about 80% of our index at the moment because it is the largest. And if you weight by market cap size, that's what you end up getting. Uh, there are uh, exclusions uh, that are applied because we also have eligibility rules. For example, uh, very relevant to today, Bitcoin, uh, as opposed to BSV, uh, was not included in our index and still isn't because Historically, it has had very low liquidity, uh, and so it didn't meet the liquidity threshold for our index. Of course, today, it seems like a crazy amount of trading is happening on that asset, uh, but, uh, but it, it has been, those types of rules have been applied to make sure that the pricing is actually reflective of real price discovery because an asset is trading uh, a great amount, and also later on when the fund needs to buy or sell, depending on money moving in and out of the fund, that that pricing that we use in our index is actually something that is executable. So anyway, so there are certain uh, safeguards for eligibility for assets to be included in the index, but in general, the, the intelligence that is applied is actually 
what the price that is provided by the market. The market decides on the market caps and the prices of each asset, and we rebalance that uh, every month to be reflective of the top 10 assets in the space. Yeah, that's kind of my question. Next question is like, how often do you rebalance this thing? Because the markets are quite volatile and market cap generally as a metric is uh, arguably a difficult thing to base everything on if you're not taking in some of those other other thresholds or criteria uh, because it's because it's so easily, in my opinion, manipulable, manipulatable. How do you say that word? <laughs> that's a great question. I that's a good point. Uh, so to answer your question again, uh, the rebalance frequency is monthly. And generally, in traditional asset classes, rebalances biannually or annually uh, because they don't feel the need to uh, change things as, as frequently because new listings or price movements are much more dampened uh, compared to the crypto market. We, we did analysis on a number of different frequencies, yearly, bi-yearly, uh, quarterly, monthly, et cetera. Uh, or even shorter time frames, uh, and the balance is to not try to create too much thrash or too much turnover in the index, mm-hmm. but still capture new assets that emerge. For example, if you missed Ethereum early on in 2017 or 2016, then it would have had a meaningful difference uh, or, or a one-year interval of when you entered uh, uh, Ethereum entry index would have had a meaningful impact on the total performance. So. Uh, uh, anyways, we did a fair amount of analysis there and determined that, that monthly was the right frequency. Uh, and to your point about market cap being a manipulatable metric, uh, that point is actually a little bit more nuanced if you want to dive into it further. So Love to. the supply of something like Bitcoin, uh, let's just call it current supply, uh, which is the thing that you multiply price by to get current market cap, is fairly standard and hard to manipulate, actually, because it is the programmatically issued amount of Bitcoin. So that's the standard that almost everyone uses. Uh, uh, it's not really trying to estimate how much has moved lately or lost or Satoshi's coins, etc. All of that is included. It is a fairly simple rule of anything that has been issued or mined over the years, over the past 11 years or so, uh, is included in the current supply, which gets multiplied by price, which gets the market cap. And that's fairly clear. Uh, and nobody can manipulate that unless you can introduce an inflation bug into Bitcoin, which would be uh, a, a hard task to accomplish. The market caps that are a little bit more fungible or arbitrary are the coins in which have treasury balances. So pre-mined coins, such as XRP or Stellar or, or et cetera, those coins uh, have the analog to issued supply, programmatically issued supply, uh, in that case would be whatever had been issued from the treasury. Anything that has left the treasury yeah. in some sort of distribution would be the equivalent metric to follow there. Uh, but it's very, sometimes it is very gray. So a good example would be for something like Ripple, uh, um, Jen McCaleb, who is one of the co-founders that has now left uh, and started Stellar and has an ongoing lawsuit about his supply that, that he, pre-mined supply that he owns, uh, which is a large portion. He can't really sell because of all these court proceedings, but it's still he's not associated with Ripple, the company, and it's not really in the treasury anymore. 
Like, is that now part of the supply or not part of the supply? Is that more akin to Bitcoin supply that has not been mined or Bitcoin supply that has been mined and is uh, held by a early party of uh, or, or an OG Bitcoin? Um, and that type of decision uh, is a little bit subjective and a little bit nuanced. Uh, but why we do that research to try to be as uh, uh, consistent across different assets uh, across different coins that are pre-mined that way and also try to make the pre-mined coins and the continuously mined coins like Bitcoin be on an even playing field so that we are comparing apples to apples in a consistent way. Uh, But in that realm, things are a little bit more complicated uh, and judgment calls are necessary. Yeah, so like that's that's certainly true in terms of the supply side and um, the various distribution methods of of given coins. But on the other side of that coin, you have the like liquidity and volume in markets and the associated price discovery, which and some of that and some of that supply side comes into that. And so, um, like in order to find market cap, you need to multiply the current price times the total supply. But that current price is something that can like easily well. It's, it's very difficult to find natural price discovery when you have very low liquidity and relatively small volumes compared to traditional finance. How do you take that part into account? That's absolutely true. Uh, that's why our fund tracks a... So, so there's a lot of answers to that question. Uh, but that's one of the reasons why our fund tracks a top 10 index, not a top 50 or top 100 index, because we don't really think there are 50 or 100 coins that actually have good price discovery. Ah. If you go to the 50th coin, the price is a signal of what what market might exist for that coin. But it's really hard to say that there's a lot of signal there and also that it's not manipulatable very easily by a very small amount of money. Uh, if you get to the, When you get to the larger market cap coins, and Bitcoin obviously is the best defender there, uh, it does become materially harder and harder and requires more money and uh, activity in more markets that are often regulated to move the price one way or the other. And at some point, uh, uh, it's also worth noting that markets that are as large as crude oil or gold are often uh, pointed at to have some amount of short squeezes or market manipulation, et cetera, and investigations by the CFTC occur and et cetera, et cetera. So no market is, it's, it's worth noting that, that no market is completely yeah. um, devoid of market manipulation or the ability for small number of concentrated parties, the ability to move prices is sort of a part of the market existing. Um, uh, and, Generally, we, we need to be cautious of those things. Uh, but that's one of the reasons why, I said, as I said, we have a top 10 index uh, and a fund that follows that. And also that the index itself has liquidity rules that make sure that if it really does not trade, uh, even if the price uh, is something astronomically high, such that the market cap becomes part of the top 10, if it really doesn't trade much, then it doesn't get included in index because index has those rules to rule them out. That's great. And that, that transitions quite nicely into um, one of the kind of the, the main things I wanted to talk about with you guys. Uh, a while ago, you posted an article um, that quoted um, 
that approximately 95% of reported Bitcoin trading volume is fake, right? So like this is, I guess, associated with wash trading. Can you explain what wash trading is and how it plays into kind of the, the how people view markets? Sure. So uh, wash trading generally refers to trades that have no economic reality. So for example, let's say... I, uh, we, we, let's talk about like traditional uh, equities exchange. So if I were to open up an, um, uh, a trade on the New York Stock Exchange where I bought Apple stock for myself, there's a trade that is now recorded, but it has no economic reality to it. It's just uh, a wash trade because I bought for myself. Let's say I... The variations of this type of trade. So let's say you and I decide to create a pool of money in which uh, we use that money so that you can buy Apple stock from me and then, and then later on I can buy it back from you and the proceeds are shared. Again, while now there are trades that are happening between two parties, the economic reality of that trade, again, is nothing. Uh, and why does wash trades happen? Uh, because the trade volume itself can still create signal to the market. So if you and I kept trading Apple stock that way, then if people picked up that trade uh, uptick in the trade volume of Apple stock, people might start speculating on why there's a lot of trades going on on Apple, and that might move the market up or down uh, depending on how that trade volume spike is spent. Uh, and that type of behavior is often... Uh, is is clearly defined as market manipulation in traditional markets. And if you and I were discovered to be engaged in that type of activity, we would be prosecuted uh, by regulators in, in, in the U.S. Uh, and, and, and ha- have uh, real consequences associated to that. Um, the problem in crypto is that the markets uh, that are these exchanges are often not regulated. So. I want to caveat that by saying that uh, spot exchange regulation is now on a spectrum. So U.S. exchanges actually, like CoinMarket, uh, sorry, Coinbase or Kraken or Gemini, etc., have a fairly large amount of regulatory oversight imposed upon them. They're mm-hmm. often bit license bit license holders, which means that the New York uh, Department of Financial Services does annual audits uh, and applies all these types of regulation on top of it. Also, they usually uh, have money transfer license uh, in, in different states, uh, which also comes with a lot of reporting rules to FinCEN, which is a regulatory body that tries to make sure that terrorists don't acquire money or money laundering uh, uh, doesn't happen, etc. So there's a lot of, there's a fair amount of regulation that happens, uh, but there is the, the existence of much less regulated exchanges uh, that have no real um, uh, that isn't really KYC type thing. Locate, yeah, domiciled in a certain country that has those rules uh, or doesn't re- apply uh, KYC or AML type things that would even enable you to take action upon somebody if they were to have bad behavior. Uh, those exchanges do exist in crypto. So um, that's the sort of core issue. Uh, uh, and, and such people can in, engage in such trading behavior. Uh, but also, most notably, uh, in the crypto world, even exchanges can be involved in such behavior. So one of the ways that you can get noticed 
uh, or get traffic or users in crypto is by having higher volumes so, so that your exchange or trading pair is listed higher in coin market cap or data sites like coin market cap. So then you have the incentive to just print trades, uh, not even really watch trade them. I can simply report to coin market cap that I had a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin trading yesterday. Uh, and that often just goes, uh, uh, if coin market cap takes my word for it, then now I have a billion dollar uh, trade volume exchange for Bitcoin. Um, and in reality, it can just be a website that I threw up uh, on Amazon Web Services with no consequence or, or, or no anything. I might mm-hmm. not even have a single user there. But anyways, so uh, that is that is broadly what wash trading is and why a certain parties that are trying to move the market or exchange venues themselves might engage in such behavior to either attract customers or, or move the markets in a certain way that that's favorable to them. And why do you see that affecting kind of uh, like the overall uh, difficulty of index funds trying to evaluate like quality projects and like what is actual use and volume and liquidity of a given asset? Yeah, great question. So a few things here. One, the index fund operation itself is not really the thing that is harder by this type of watch trading because it's still really hard to move Bitcoin's price with any amount of wash trading uh, or the sort of the, the top 10 large assets that, that, that we're talking about. So let's say uh, uh, I put up a site, a fake site that, that reports a lot of Bitcoin volume. Uh, it's hard to move Bitcoin's price as a consequence of that because nobody will really care. Uh, and even if that increases the reported total 24 hour volume on sites like CoinMarketCap, by 10% or even 100%, let's say, uh, from $1 billion worth of trading volume that goes from $2 billion as a consequence of my website, great. But nobody really cared about that number anyways because a lot of people are desensitized to the movement uh, or the shenanigans that are happening with the total volume number. So nobody bases their trading on that. So the price itself wouldn't really be impacted. So price discovery is really not uh, the biggest concern here. <laughs> what, what actually... The biggest problem of this type of watch trading uh, and this data issue uh, is that it makes it hard for same conversations to happen amongst industry parties that often involve regulators about the state of the market. Mm. Um, And that has acute consequences, especially in things that require regulatory approval. And the most relevant one to Bitwise is uh, a Bitcoin ETF application. So the SEC, which is a financial regulator in the U.S., that decides a lot of financial products being introduced or novel sort of new asset classes reaching the masses, has denied a Bitcoin ETF or rejected applications of new ETF proposals for Bitcoin the past five plus years. And one of the biggest reasons for them is because they feel that the they they can't uh, they can't approve of a product for which they don't feel comfortable that they understand what's going on in the underlying market. <laughs> and if if somebody comes to you, up to you and says the trade volume of this asset 
is something between a billion or 20 billion. We don't really know. That doesn't give, that's not necessarily confidence inducing. Uh, and also, this is the most trafficked data site that people go to to look for prices and volume. And the vast, vast majority of the volume reported on that site, let's say CoinMarketCap, is totally non, is not based in any reality. Well, at least there's no way and to prove that it is. Yeah. It, we, could, we could assume it's not, but there's also, like, for, for, from their perspective, there's no way to prove it. Exactly. Uh, and, and, and the way that regulators learn about the world uh, is not as a practitioner. It's not that they are opening up accounts and try to trade on these platforms. They, the way that they learn about the world is by listening to people that submit comment letters to them, the people that come in and have meetings with them. And there are proponents and, and opponents on, on both. There's people on both sides of the table of whether something like a Bitcoin ETF should, should come to market. So, depending on what argument you want to make, you will say that uh, there's a lot of shenanigans going on overseas that we don't even know about versus uh, people that say, look, all that is actually not impacting the market. What's actually impacting the market is this, is this sort of regulated real corner here that seems smaller but actually is really large. Uh, and so it makes that kind of conversation incredibly difficult to have. If you can't even agree upon the denominator of trade volume that we're talking about, uh, then it's, it's one of those very basic truths that, that in traditional asset classes, people can very easily talk about uh, and, that, and, and then have more in-depth conversations about, okay, there's a billion dollars of trading happening, and we know that all that happened, but which of them are actually more important? Maybe this $100 million in trade volume is leading the price discovery as opposed to the, the, the $900 million here is sort of even though it's larger, it's lagging. So maybe price discovery is happening here. That's like a more advanced conversation that is the type of conversation that you need to be able to have to then uh, uh, have conversations about approval of these types of regulated products that, uh, that are important in our financial infrastructure. Uh, but because this fake data problem clouds uh, sort of the fundamental truth or, or the baseline uh, truth, that it makes those higher level, uh, more important topics almost impossible to have, which stalls a lot of progress uh, in our in, in this in this industry and asset class. So that's actually the biggest consequence of this of this data problem. Um, not necessarily the price, because the price still, I, even though ninety five percent, or we had a report that came out that said ninety five percent of fake volume uh, exists in Bitcoin price uh, Bitcoin volume reporting. I believe in, in the price discovery of Bitcoin. So, so, so I generally think that the Bitcoin price we see on screen right now or in core market cap is something that you can very closely execute. If I were to try to go out and buy Bitcoin, a uh, million dollars of Bitcoin, $10 million of Bitcoin, I would probably get somewhere between 10 basis points of what I see on screen right now. And I have a fair amount of confidence in that. So price discovery is not really the issue, but the conversations about the asset class is the thing that is difficult. I see. That makes a lot of sense. Another part of this that I think that maybe potentially contributes to it is the is the trading that happens that isn't tacked into price discovery at all. And that's through like over-the-counter trading or OTC. Like how does how does that play a role? Because people within our community have argued back and forth whether or not OTC is even good for um for these things. I I lend I stand on the side of it is good. Uh but like can you explain kind of like a, your perspective on OTC markets and how they play into this? 
Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we've been operating an actual fund that tries to track the index for the past two plus years. Mm-hmm. So we've been uh, money has been moving in and out uh, the subscription to our fund and sometimes the debt to our fund in a weekly frequency have been happening almost every week without without uh, skipping for the past three years. So we've been trading uh, over a fairly long period of time. Uh, and most of our trades go through uh, OTC vests. Uh, and that ecosystem has been growing and evolving over the past two years as well with, with, with sort of more older players like Cumberland or Circle or, um, uh, uh, or Genesis having been... Uh, in the space for for a long time, and newer players or, or sort of more traditional uh, equities or, or fixing income sort of market makers like Jane Street or Susquehanna coming into the place as well, into the space as well, uh, and sort of forcing a lot of spreads between um, uh, market price on what they will offer to become sort of tighter and tighter. So uh, the space has been evolving, and, and we've been engaging with these OTC uh for for a long period of time. Uh, uh, what, what I can Say is that uh, their effect in this asset class is, is most likely uh, very positive because they provide liquidity. Uh, what I mean by that is, um, well, one, one way to very viscerally think about this is that uh, I can't remember exactly when, but the uh, Liquidations related to the Mt. Gox uh, uh, issue. So the trustee that uh, is involved in trying to liquidate portions uh, of the Bitcoin that is tied up in that lawsuit to pay back uh, the people uh, that had a class or, or were owed Bitcoin uh, liquidated a, a hundreds of millions of Bitcoin in in a very aggressive way uh, on the market directly. Uh, and that type of liquidity sort of hitting the market in a single moment uh, can can sort of tank the price in a meaningful way, even with just, let's say, $100 million worth of Bitcoin. <laughs> if, if that $100 million was uh, liquidated through a sophisticated market maker, uh, like Susquehanna, for example, um, then, then the market impact would, could have been much, much less because they will take that order uh, and quote uh, you back with some spread on top of what the market price they, they see in the market, uh, sort of assuming, baking into the model of how much, uh, how much the price they expect to move or inevitably push down as they liquidate. Um, and, and then they would sort of take a long period of time to... Uh, execute that trade on the, the markets, or wait until they have other buyers so that they can they can uh, liquidate that position uh, without hitting the market itself. So, generally, uh, uh, OTC desks provide basically as like a sh- shock absorption. There's not w- when somebody comes in with a large trade. There's not always a large buyer or seller on the other side, uh, and they play that role of being the immediate buyer or seller on the other side, and then. Uh, uh, spread that out so that the impact is dampened. Uh, so they play this dampening role in the volatility uh, in, in in Bitcoin or other crypto assets. And that dampening uh, is a valuable thing in, in the current volatility that even after such dampening effects are applied are still very, very high. So, um, 
yes, that's that's a little bit about it. Let's see this. The last thing that I'll add there is that uh, they they don't necessarily play as much of a price discovery role as does open market exchanges. Oh, not at all. So, In my opinion, that's that's almost the negative downside of OTC markets is that they don't play a role in price discovery, yet it's a tremendous amount of, of volume. Ah, uh, I see. Um, well. Like real volume, if you will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so just to, to help the listeners understand what we're talking about here is that generally the way that they quote is some basis points above and below what the market on-screen price that you see on places like, like Coinbase Pro. So, Let's say I'm trying to buy Bitcoin and Coinbase is saying that Bitcoin is currently at $8,000. Then they would sell it to me at $8,000 plus some spread on top. Mm -hmm. Uh, And usually these days, it's about 10 basis points or less, which which is actually an incredibly uh, efficient price compared to even that the exchange's fees uh, are still somewhere between 20 and 30 basis points. Uh, And that the spreads that OTC has charged previously, maybe a year or two ago, was still much higher. Something more like 20 basis or, or, or more than that. So anyways, it's an efficient uh, market, but, but, but it, they generally just simply price it on top of whatever the market price is at. So the market, uh, the open market, like Kraken or Coinbase Pro, etc., are still determining the price. Buying and sell orders there are still where price discovery is happening. Uh, and these OTC that are, are providing liquidity or, or dampening uh, effect uh, uh, on, on, on top of them. Um, so your, your question about whether uh, uh, a lot of volume happening off exchanges are a good thing or a bad thing. Um, first off, I would say that that in 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 my best estimation, uh, the, the the volumes happening on OTC are still less than what are happening in spot exchanges. So let's say if, if there's a billion dollars um, uh, worth of, of real spot exchange volume happening every day probably OTC desk volume is still something much less than that, maybe 200 million, maybe 400 million. Nobody knows exactly for sure because it's not something that is easily computable. Uh, but most industry um, uh, participants would guess that it is something smaller. So proportionally, it's not the sort of the, uh, uh, the, the tail wagging the dog type of situation. Generally, I think it provides a service, but still it's, it's, a, it's a minority of the volume or a smaller part of the volume in which uh, that the, the has a healthy uh, relationship. Another thing that I would say about OTC volume, uh, where you need to sort of take with a grain of salt what large uh, desks sometimes will report as their volume and their annual reports, or et cetera, is that uh, a lot of it is actually probably also redundant volume to um, to spot exchanges. So yeah. let's say I, I buy... Uh, uh, $10 million of Bitcoin from uh, a large trading desk, then they will turn around and try to source that liquidity from uh, exchanges and uh, across all the exchanges they can get the best prices from. So then it's actually just pass-through volume and they're almost an execution algorithm for my intent. Uh, and it still hits the exchanges anyway. So there's a fair amount of double counting that is happening with OTC volume as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I I thought about that until you were explaining the whole concept. Is that there's a, there's actually an overlap, um, depending on what the OTC market like. If if there's if there's both sides of the trade available or not. If there's not, they they go to the market and try and provide that damping effect. Otherwise, they're in a sense just providing buyers with an opportunity to purchase large amounts without slippage. Uh, that's that's true. Yeah, 
Yeah, they 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 are in a sense risk takers uh, if they are trading with their own books. So, so, so they have some amount of working capital. They have models about if they make a hundred bets, fifty one of them or whatever will be profitable, um, and they are taking that risk uh, on behalf of some theoretical uh, counterparty that might emerge on the other side. And they are, as a whole, trying to make money, but they're not always trying to make money at every trade. Mm-hmm. They're risk takers, and, and, and by, by that role, uh, they're providing the function that you're talking about. That's great. I don't want to take up too much more of your time, um, but what, what, what's kind of um, on the, the, the future sites of Bitwise? Where, where is that going, and how do you see things playing out over the next couple of years? Great question. By and large, the the category or the, the users that we are trying to serve the most at the moment is financial advisors, uh, which from our vantage point is one of the largest segments that are given the least amount of love in the crypto space and, and definitely uh, from from the investment uh, management uh, side of the, of the industry. So financial advisors, very quickly... Uh, are people that are sort of like their doctors or sort of like um, uh, for, for, for most of the wealthy individuals in the U.S., they don't actually make individual trade decisions. Uh, who, who you, uh, those people would be called sort of self-directed investors. Uh, that's maybe 5 to 10% of the U.S. US sort of high net worth individual landscape. And everyone else uh, has financial advisors that manage their portfolios for them. And we are trying to provide tools and products for that category and also all the plumbing like reporting or custody or, or sort of taxes, et cetera, for that, for that constituent to easily allocate uh, their client's money into this asset class. So generally, we're trying to educate and make easier so that uh, uh, all, the, all the sort of more part of, uh, parts of uh, the mainstream investor public can get access to this asset class that we believe in is a, has a large wealth creation opportunity for the next five, 10 years uh, and, and onward. So that's what we're trying to do uh, at, at a high level mission for Bitwise. Uh, and there's a number of projects uh, along that way. And, and w- one of the big projects that has a lot, gets a lot of publicity uh, and it's, it's still very relevant is a Bitcoin ETF, for example. Um, an ETF is a exchange traded fund. Uh, uh, what that means is that you take a fund uh, and make it into its own sort of traded security. So you make it something like Apple or Amazon that, that has a price that trades all day long. Um, so you basically IPO a fund so that it becomes sort of a ticker and, 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 and uh, a trading stock on its own. Uh, and by doing that, you make it incredibly easy for anyone to buy and sell uh, on their brokerage accounts, uh, put, them, put into their IRA, IRAs, um, like retirement accounts or your financial advisor or anyone else to really um, uh, simply buy and sell that asset. Uh, and because the ETF would likely also hold physical Bitcoins that are custodied by another provider, it's, it's really not sort of syn- uh, synthesizing any more Bitcoin exposure or anything like that. It's, it's really... Uh, it's absorbing uh, risk uh, in a lot of ways. Into- yeah, yeah, just making it easier uh, uh, and still if somebody buys a certain amount of one Bitcoin's worth of shares of the ETF, then from, from somewhere on uh, uh, another corner of the world, uh, one Bitcoin is being bought and being put into a custodian that custodies for that, that ETF. So anyway, 
um, uh, uh, Bitcoin ETF would be like a big step forward in in, in our mission, uh, and that's the type of thing that we are are very much focused on and working on. Uh, and outside of that, uh, we're, we're, we're generally we have uh, 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 a 10% sales team that is having a lot of conversations with financial advisors, uh, and, and also a fairly large research team that is creating a lot of content and educational materials uh, for those people to learn. So th- th- those are sort of ongoing efforts. Uh, uh, that are happening uh, uh, regardless and also sort of the medium-term uh, efforts from our company is to try to bring a Bitcoin ETF to market. Awesome. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Is, where can people uh, reach out to you and learn more? Um, uh, uh, Wise Investments uh, uh, is our Twitter handle, uh, which uh, is probably the best place for uh, to follow our company and, and, and get updates. Uh, uh, yeah. That's, right. that's probably the best. Right. I definitely appreciate you kind of uh, trying to, to provide some clarity around how these markets work, kind of the difficulties associated with uh, cryptocurrency markets uh, when compared to traditional markets, uh, surrounding the kind of extra pseudonymity associated with them and, and lack of regulation and, and the difficulties associated with building the necessary regulation around them when, you're, when you build financial tools like ETFs. So it helped a lot. Thank you. My pleasure.